0: As you find your seats this morning, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39 is where we'll spend our time uh, together this morning. This is the passage Dustin read for us just a few moments ago. Uh, if you're our guest, my name is Taylor. I serve here at as Lead Pastor. We're honored to have you worshiping with us together today. And what our church family has been doing for the last few weeks is we have been uh, doing a short message series through Matthew's Gospel called "Follow Me," where we are looking at what it means to follow Jesus Christ, not on our terms but on His terms. And and part of the reason why we're doing this message series is born out of a conviction that much of what it means to truly follow Jesus has been largely lost here in the Bible Belt, where in many ways, radical devotion to Jesus Christ has been traded and substituted for a superficial game of nominal religion. And the concern that I've repeated for the last few weeks is that in our culture and communities just like Buford in particular, nominal Christianity has become so normal that normal Christianity gets labeled as radical. And what desperately needs to happen as the message of the gospel is proclaimed and as it's advanced in our community, is for what we look at as radical Christianity to actually become normal Christianity so that normal Christianity will replace nominal Christianity. Because more than atheism, more than agnosticism, more than liberal progressivism, more than Christian nationalism, more than all of these things, as concerning as they are, the greatest threat to the gospel in our culture today is nominalism within the church. So we've been studying the follow me statements made by Jesus in Matthew's gospel account, which has helped us to see the true cost of discipleship. Now last week I opened and I closed with the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor uh, during the Nazi regime in the 1930s and 40s. And we're going to look at Bonhoeffer's life again today because Bonhoeffer's life provides for Western Christians a much needed example to follow today. Bonhoeffer was famous not just for his boldness and his courage in rebuking the Nazi regime for the atrocities that it was committing. He was also bold and courageous in rebuking the church for its silence in the name of those evils and injustices as they were committed. Like many German Christians in the 1930s and 40s, many Christians in America today have grown silent in the face of evil. We've grown silent and indifferent to evils like abortion and racial injustice and and the blending of the Christian faith with American nationalistic language. We've become indifferent to these things. And in many ways, we have become guilty of perpetuating all of these things. It's amazing. You know, you you ask followers of Jesus, we'll we'll look back at history and we'll say, you know, if I had lived during that time and age, I wouldn't have been quiet in the face of evil the way all those Christians were. And we just ask these questions, man, how could Christians have been silent in the face of of slavery? How could Christians have been silent in the face of the Holocaust in the 1940s? If you want to know how Christians remained silent then, look at how Christians approach the subject of abortion today. Because the exact same justifications made for this wickedness is the exact same justification that was made for evils in the past. And far too many followers of Christ have made peace with evil and injustice. But our greatest area of guilt, I I would argue, it's it's not from just what we have found ourselves supporting and perpetuating outside of the church. The biggest challenge is what we're allowing inside the church, which is the cheapening of the grace of God. Last week, we closed with Bonhoeffer's words, his challenge where he said that salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life, something that he went on to know at a deep personal level because he did, in fact, lose his life for the name of Jesus Christ. Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. We cheapen the grace of God when we offer the free gift of salvation without also communicating the cost of discipleship. So what exactly did did Bonhoeffer mean by cheap grace? I wanna share a longer quote from him where he defines what cheap grace is. He said, cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares: The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price. Grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Church salvation is free, but discipleship is costly. Here's what we've seen the last couple weeks. We saw in the first week from Matthew 4 that the call to Jesus Christ is a call to follow him and to forsake everything else. That this call, it could cost us our homes, it could cost us our jobs, it could cost us our money, it could cost us our family, it could even cost us our lives, and yet that is the call that Jesus invites us to follow him into. Last week we saw that it might cost us comfort, it might cost us safety, and it will test our closest relationships, which is what we're going to see more in depth today. And we're going to see this morning that following Jesus means loving him more than those that we love most. And not just loving him more than those who are in our lives, it means loving him more than life itself. So for Matthew chapter 10, let's read the words of Jesus again from verses 34 to 37. Jesus says, "'Do not think that I have come "'to bring peace to the earth. "'I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. "'For I have come to set a man against his father "'and a daughter against her mother.' and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So what does Jesus show us about the cost of discipleship in Matthew 10? Two truths that we're going to look at closely together this morning. First, Jesus shows us we must love Jesus more than those we love most. We must love Jesus more than those we love most. Now, in verse four, Jesus leads out with a statement that might catch a lot of us by surprise and and seem contradictory at first glance based on other things we've seen about Jesus. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And here's why that can be confusing. Because it seems to contradict things that were said about Jesus, and it also seems to contradict things that Jesus said about himself and calls us to do. Isaiah chapter 9 had prophesied that Jesus would be the prince of peace. At the announcement of his birth in Luke chapter 2, the angel declared glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus said himself in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And yet here is the Son of God saying, He did not come to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now you might remember from our study of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, what he primarily had in mind was the peacemaking that needs to happen between God and man. Because as sinners, we are enemies of God, we need to be reconciled to right relationship with God. And so the peacemaking Jesus calls us to is the work of evangelism. It's proclaiming the good news of how mankind can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. But even that work of peacemaking can generate hostility because whenever we share the good news of how man can be made right with God, it requires confronting man in his sin. And so even the work of peacemaking, of of working to reconcile God and man, this can get convoluted because it requires confronting man and his sin. So sometimes this isn't going to be well received. But in order for peace between God and man to be achieved, oftentimes it's going to mean that our relationships are strained because we're going to confront the sins in others. Time and time again in the gospel accounts, Jesus promised that we would face hostility from this world that we would face hatred, that we would face pushback, that we would face persecution. Many of us, we forget very, very quickly that Jesus faced opposition and pushback from the members of his own family. He himself experienced this on a personal level. And here he shows us in Matthew 10 that the pushback and the persecution might come from the people that we love the most. So Jesus warns in verses 34 through 36 that our families may become our enemies. Following him means that our families, the members of our own household, may very well become our own enemies. Faithfulness to him may cause division within the home. Church, truth by its very nature and definition is divisive. That's what it does. Truth Divides. Now, Scripture warns absolutely against divisiveness, a spirit of divisiveness among brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to walk as one and to walk in unity in accordance with God's word. So we're not about pursuing divisiveness. Let's understand that. It's not that we want to be hostile. It's not that we're, we're trying to be insulting to other people. But we have to recognize that the gospel message is an offensive message. And it's going to be a dividing line among even the closest members of a family. And so Jesus shows us here three examples of relationships that might be impacted. He says, I'll set a man against his father. I'll set a daughter against her mother. I'll set a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Some would argue Jesus didn't need help with the third one, but that's neither here nor there. We, just see, we saw an example of this in Matthew chapter 8 last week, right? A man says to Jesus, I will follow you. I'll follow you. And he says, but first I need to go bury my father. And if you remember from last week, what he wanted to do was he wanted to fulfill his obligation to be there when his parents passed away so that he could take care of the funeral arrangements and then settle the estate of the home. And how does Jesus respond to that very good desire? He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The message that Jesus was communicating in that moment wasn't that that work was unimportant. He just said, following me is more important Following Jesus is more important than the most important responsibilities that we have in this world. Had this man walked away from the responsibility to follow Jesus, you think that wouldn't have caused some friction within his home? Of course it would. And we see still today all around the world followers of Jesus Christ are persecuted by members of their own family because of their devotion to Jesus Christ. Eight years ago in Uganda, uh, two teenagers converted to Christianity from Islam, and you you hear a lot of these types of stories in countries where uh, there's hostility and opposition to the gospel, where there's not much gospel access. Two teenagers both reported having the same dream, which uh, in their dream, uh, someone dressed in white clothes told them to go to the church to be prayed for, so they did, and they they converted out of Islam, become followers of Jesus Christ. One of them was a 17-year-old girl, and when her father found out what she had done. He dragged her back to their home and he beat her to death with his own hands. And her sister was left to bury her. The dividing line in that family was Jesus Christ. Safia was a Muslim woman who was divorced and she had two children, a son and a daughter who was disabled. And when her family found out that she converted to Christianity, they rallied up the entire community, the entire neighborhood to surround her home and throw rocks through her windows, threatening her life and the safety of her children. So eventually she had to flee from her own family. She had to flee from her own family to keep herself and her children safe. And listen, we could go on and on and on and on. These are not things that happened centuries ago. These are things that are still happening today. Just this past week, I listened to similar testimonies out of China and out of North Korea, places where there is deep hostility and opposition to the name of Jesus and to the message of his gospel. Here at home, the vast majority of us, I would, I would contend probably none of us in this room have faced that type of threat to our own safety. If you have, I'd love to meet you and hear your testimony. But, but probably for most of us in this room, we've never experienced that type of threat or opposition and likely never will within the span of our lives. It's always possible, but, but right now we've probably not experienced those things. But we, you could ask around this room, and I, I would be willing to bet there's plenty of people would say, but my faith in Jesus has still caused hostility within my family. And so listen, maybe you've got a family member who believes you know, that all people are inherently good. And so they're super offended when you start talking about how all people are not inherently good. We're sinners who are desperately in need of a savior. And so your faith in Jesus is a dividing line in that relationship. Maybe you have a member of your family who's chosen uh, an alternative sexual lifestyle that goes outside of the boundaries of God's word that you can't affirm. And the pushback you're receiving from that family member is the accusation that you hate them and don't love them because you won't affirm their lifestyle. Maybe you've got a family member who is who's agnostic or who's atheistic and, and who's maybe a little more militant in their beliefs and expression of this and who think that choosing to follow Jesus makes you ignorant at best and arrogant at work. And they'll mock you and they'll belittle you because you believe in the magic sky fairy daddy who lives above us. The name of Jesus is, is divisive. Listen, some of us, you've got family members who claim to be followers of Christ, but they're super legalistic in their expression of their faith. And they think you're being unfaithful to Jesus, and they'll persecute you because of how much grace you show to sinners. And and so they will persecute you for following Jesus because you had the audacity to actually follow Jesus and not just say that we believe what he said. We can face pushback from, from so many directions. The name of Jesus Christ can be a dividing line even among the closest members of our homes. So we can't hide behind the call to be peacemakers as an excuse to avoid conflict. Church, the name of Jesus Christ divides. If the name of Jesus Christ is influential enough to divide history into two parts of B.C. and A.D., you better believe the name of Jesus is going to be controversial enough to cause division in homes. And Jesus warns us here, the closest people closest to you, members of your own household, faith in me may cost you a relationship with them and they may become your enemies. But in spite of this, Jesus shows us in verse 37, our devotion cannot be in question. So our families may become our enemies, but in spite of that, our devotion should never be in question. Listen to what he says in verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, you might hear Jesus say that those who love their families more than him are not worthy of him, and your pushback to that might be, well, technically, none of us are worthy of the love of Jesus. And listen, you'd be absolutely right. None of us are worthy of his love. We're we're sinners who are desperately in need of a Savior, and, and Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior who can rescue us from our sins. And the good news of the gospel, does it not tell us that, man, God doesn't love us because we're worthy. He loves us in spite of the fact that we're unworthy. That this is Romans 5.8, that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. He, he didn't die for us on the basis of knowing we would become good people. He died for us on the basis of the fact that we were his enemies and running from him. And that's the good news of the gospel now. So, so none of us are worthy of his grace. When he uses this term worthy, what he's talking about are, are those who prove their, their faith in him And their allegiance to him to the extent that they were willing to lose their closest relationships because of their relationship with Jesus. Just before this passage in Matthew 10, Jesus promised that if we acknowledge him, he says, if you acknowledge me before others here on earth, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. But then he warns us. He says, if you do not acknowledge me before men, I will not acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. As we acknowledge Jesus and proclaim his message, our efforts will stir up division among the people that we love the most. And that division will test our devotion. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles a couple books over to the Gospel of Luke. Luke 14, uh, he elaborates on this saying a bit more and comes at it from a a slightly different angle. Uh, Luke 14, verses 25 to 33, longer passage that I'm going to read here in just a moment. And I want us to read this because, again, it's, it's really the same saying. Luke is just looking at it, and he's sharing it from a different angle. And once again, what we see when we get to Luke 14, there's a crowd following Jesus. And as we saw last week, when, it, when Jesus and his ministry, anytime the crowd got bigger, the teaching would start to get harder. The more popular he became, the more pointed his message became. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. He knows that our hearts are fickle. He knows that we're prone to just kind of go with the crowd and do everything that the crowd is doing. So Jesus is very skeptical of the crowds when they're following him. And he communicates to them the cost of discipleship. And here in Luke 14, he makes one of his most, if not his most, controversial statements. He shows us in Luke 14 that our devotion to him should be so strong that our love for anyone else should look like hate compared to our love for Jesus. And Luke clearly makes this point by actually using this word hate, by recording that Jesus used this word in Luke 14. Let's read verses 25 through 33. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And when's the last time you heard a sermon preached on that passage? Today doesn't count, by the way. Because here's what I fear has has happened with many of us. We love John 3.16, Jesus, right? God so loved the world. Gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And man, that is good news. I hope you never, ever, ever get over John 3.16. That is really, really good news. But here's what I fear a lot of us are. We really like the John 3.16 Jesus, but we don't so much like the Luke 14 Jesus. We're like, yeah, give me the the John 3.16 Jesus, but Luke 14, Jesus, like that. I'm I'm not so much interested in that. And and man, this just brings the words of Bonhoeffer to life. Well, yes, salvation is free, but discipleship was gonna cost you your life. And I fear this is where many of us are. Man, we want the free gift of salvation, but we are not willing to pay the cost of discipleship. And we can't find ourselves guilty of, of choosing between one Jesus or the other. We can't just say, hey, my Jesus is the John three sixteen Jesus. You can take Luke 14, Jesus, all day. I'm going to stick around over here. We don't get to choose which version of Jesus that we follow. We don't get to create new terms and conditions in being a Christian and following Jesus and just assume that he's going to be totally cool with this. Yeah, I just fear here in the West, man, we have so cheapened the gospel message. But we just tried to make it seem so easy to become a follower of Christ, it just say, hey, pray this prayer, repeat these words, fill out this card, walk this aisle, stand up, raise your hand, get a t-shirt, get baptized, you're good to go forever. And, and that's just kind of where it all ends. It's kind of where it all ends. You know, I, I did student ministry for, uh, for about 12 years before we planted the church. And I remember several years ago, as I was coming to the end of student ministry, I took a group of students. Um, to a camp. And it was a pretty big camp, a couple thousand other students there. And um, there's a speaker who's there, pretty popular. And, and so the last night of camp, he gave an invitation to respond to the, the message and, and to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And so uh, his message was about 40 minutes long. He told some very heartwarming, funny stories, like fun, engaging guy to listen to. Students really cued in on everything that he was doing and he vaguely referenced the Bible on a couple of occasions, and it was lots of promises about new life in Jesus, and it was just a message about how God was just crazy about them and just was dying to be their friend and have a relationship with him. And so when it comes to the end for for the time to give the, the, the invitation to this, of course, there's like 200 students that are like, yes, I'm in for that. I'm in for all that. Now, man, at no point in time in his message did we ever hear the word sin did we ever hear about the necessity of repentance? Did we hear anything, warning of judgment, anything about the cost of discipleship? And so it's a big emotional experience. All these students come running forward. And so I follow our students out because like, I really want to hear what's going on next because I was concerned based on what I had just heard. And they go into this room. They spend about 10 minutes there, fill out a card. Hey, what decision did you make tonight? It was I became a follower of Jesus. And then that night, man, the speaker was, was on his social media pages. 200 people came to faith in Jesus Christ tonight. And here was my problem with that. At no point in time had anyone actually proclaimed the gospel. Like we're claiming 200 people were just converted. I'm sitting there going, to what were they converted? Not to Jesus. Because what we just heard was not the announcement of the gospel. We heard the promise of new life. We heard a promise of resurrection, but it came without the necessity of a crucifixion. It was the promise of redemption, but without the necessity of repentance. Church, it was cheap grace. It wasn't the gospel. And and so, man, as as a youth pastor, I'm going to spend like the next couple weeks like I'm meeting with students and trying to sort that out and and trying to help them understand like, like what was this about and what the true gospel message is. And how do we respond to this and apply it to our lives? Free gift of salvation is only half of the gospel. Yes, you can come to Jesus. Grayson led out our worship time with the passage last week. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yes, salvation is free. But to do it, you've got to forsake all else. Jesus invites all to come to him, but in coming to him, in following him, we have to forsake everything else. There's a cost to discipleship. And here in Luke 14, we hear Jesus saying, count the cost. Goodness, it just seems like for the last few decades, we've been trying to do the opposite as a church culture. Like we see people departing the church and the solution has been to water down the message in hopes that they'll come back. Church, what does it matter if we bring back masses of people if we're winning them with a false gospel? It means nothing. We can't change the terms. We don't get to invent a new version of Jesus and say, hey, old version's gone, new one's in. He's a little bit easier for you to follow, come on. Come on over here. You'll get Jesus' light over here. You get all the benefits, but you don't have to pay the cost. Come on. But we can't find ourselves guilty of doing these things. We can't find ourselves guilty saying, oh, it's easy. It's no problem. Just pray this prayer. Walk this aisle. Fill out this card. Repeat this. Do this. Go through this class. It's not this. We see Jesus himself saying in Luke 14, no, there's a cost. There's a cost. You've got to count the cost. Count the cost. Count the cost. Make sure you've got enough before you build the house. Make sure your army's big enough before you go to the other one. If it's not, do everything you can to come to terms, to peace, before they come to you. Count the cost. Jesus calls us to count the cost. You know, I'm reading this passage over the last couple weeks. I'm hearing Jesus say, you have to love me more than you love your your father and your mother. You have to love me more than your son or your daughter. And so, man, I'm just reading this passage as both a son and and as a dad. And I'm just putting myself in that position. You know, I, I mean, I had a great relationship with my dad. Great relationship with my dad. He passed away 11, almost 12 years ago. Missed my dad every single day. Could not have asked more. in a father It would be hard to, to love someone more than I loved my dad. And here I hear Jesus telling me, Taylor, you've, you've got to love me more than you loved him. I have three boys. Three boys. And man, they're knuckleheads a lot of times, but goodness, I love them. Like even on their worst, most knuckleheaded days, amen, like I love them. Love them so, so much. Like it is, just, I just, man, God's grace to me that I get to raise these three little guys. And yesterday, you know, we're at the soccer field and, and just watching them in their element playing games, just, just watching them exist and be who God created them to be. I'm watching my boys play soccer. And it's funny because they all play soccer according to their personalities, and, and so I've got one that's super aggressive, and I've got one that's a little bit more reserved, and I've got one who's just really kind of there to have fun and float around and be serious sometimes. And, and, and man, like it just, I just get so much joy watching these boys. I can't imagine loving people more than I love my boys. And here's Jesus saying, Taylor, you gotta love me more than you love those boys. You gotta love me more. It's not that he wants me to love them less, but he's calling me to love him more. And, and actually, by loving him more, I will love them better. But by becoming and being who it is that he's called me to be. Church, if our devotion to Jesus can be questioned, then it's time to question our devotion to Jesus. Everyone wants the free gift of salvation. Very few want to pay the cost of discipleship. So have you not only counted the cost, are you willing to pay it? Jesus ups the ante even more. If you thought that was possible, in Matthew chapter 10, as we read verses 38 and 39, here's how he closes this section. He says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And pay attention to this. This is the paradox and the promise of the gospel. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus shows us in Matthew 10 that we must love him more than we, than those we love most. And second, what Jesus shows us is that we must love him more than we love life itself. It's not just that he calls us to love him more than the people in our lives. He calls us to love him more than our very lives. Now, Uh, When Jesus mentions the cross here in verse 38, this is the first time in Matthew's gospel account that he mentions the cross. But when he says this, he's still very much in the early days of his ministry. And so so let's just be clear here. Jesus is abundantly clear on the front end about what the cost of discipleship is going to be. Jesus did not hide the cross in fine print. He didn't loudly announce the good news of of salvation, the free gift of salvation, and then hide discipleship in the fine print. No, he's clear on the front end, early in his ministry, this is what it means to follow me. This is what's required to become one of my disciples. In the first century culture under Roman rule, a person carrying a cross meant exactly one thing. It meant that that person was on their way to their death. That only meant one thing. In the first century culture, if someone was carrying their cross, it meant that their life was over. It meant a violent, humiliating, slow public death. It meant the anger of a mob, the wrath of people pouring down on them, mocking them, alienating them. It meant suffering alone for their final moments. You know, just as we came in this room this morning, um, you found a Next Steps card on your seat. This is a helpful tool for us as a church helps us communicate with you, helps us help you take your next step and, and get connected in our church family. And so we encourage you every single week, hey, utilize these cards. And so there's, there's options. You know, hey, I want, I'd like to join a community group. I wanna start meeting with some people outside of here throughout the course of the week. we wanna help you with that. Or, hey, I want to go to cross Point. I want to become a member of this church. And so we'll, we'll help you take that step and get connected there. You might say, hey, I'm interested in serving on a ministry team. I want to, want to put my gifts to use for the glory of God. Or, or I'm interested maybe in, in what it means to be baptized, to become a follower of Jesus Christ. All these things are there. But imagine if, under all those steps, as Dustin got up this morning and did the welcome, he said, hey, you could join a community group, serve a ministry team, uh, you can become a member of the church, or uh, you could be publicly executed on a cross. I just wonder how many of us are checking that last box? I mean, like, let's just be honest. Like, if he got up there and really started talking with that type of language, like, how many of us would still even be in this room? Okay, that's your next step. So if you you just want to, if you're interested in in being publicly executed on a cross, just meet us back here at the Y, 4 o'clock. We'll go over to Golgotha, and we'll handle it there. Like, that's that's not a very winsome message, right? That's not going to be very popular. Attendance numbers are probably going down. Giving's probably going to take a hit. Maybe the church has to close its doors. But if we did, what would that say about the church? That we're not willing to do what Jesus said is bare minimum entry into following him. Church, this is how Jesus invited people to follow him. This this was the invitation. When the crowd was there at its largest, he said, you want to follow me? This is what it means. If you want to follow me, this is what... It means, it means taking up a cross. It, it means knowing that we're leaving everything else behind. We're surrendering everything else in order to follow him. Brothers and sisters, I'm afraid that many of us have bought a very cheap gospel. I'm afraid some of us may be selling a cheap gospel. It's a gospel that offers everything without demanding anything. A gospel that offers redemption without repentance. A gospel that promises resurrection without crucifixion, a gospel that offers life in Christ without dying to sin and self. And please hear me loud and clear this morning because I love you. If that is the gospel you responded to, then you have not responded to the true gospel. And it's time to follow Jesus on his terms. You know, Many of us, we know the problem that we face. We know that the gospel is going to invoke a negative response. So we're afraid to share it because we know the pushback that's coming. And I just wonder, at what point in time do we have to pause and consider, is it possible that I'm actually ashamed of Jesus and his words? Are we willing to listen to his warning and his promise? He gives a warning in verse 39, and here's the warning. He says, we will lose what we find. That's the warning of Jesus. We have to love him more than life itself, and we will lose what we find. Listen to what he says in verse 39. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it. So that's the warning. He says, if you find your life in this life, you will ultimately end up losing it in the end. Apart from Jesus Christ, life is an empty journey to find yourself in everything except for him. And so this is the message that's constantly being preached to us from the culture that we live in today. Your true identity is found in your personality. Your, Your true identity is found in your sexuality. Your true identity is your ethnicity. It's your nationality. Your true identity is who you are as a family unit. And we try to find our lives and material comforts and possessions and pleasures and money and fame and prosperity. And Jesus warns, if you devote your life to finding yourself in all of those things, you will end up losing your life in the end. If you find yourself in this life, ultimately you will lose it in the end. That's the warning. Spend your life pursuing comforts and avoiding the conflict that will inevitably come as a follower of Jesus Christ and one of his disciples. Everything that you find, including your life, will only end in eternal destruction. That's the warning from Jesus. That's the warning. If you try to find your life in this life, you will lose it in the next. So we will lose what we find, but then here comes the promise. He says on the other side of this, but you will find what you lose. We will lose what we find, but we will find what we lose. This is the paradox and the promise of the gospel. You try to keep your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you will keep it through the end. Jesus is saying it loud and clear. You try to keep this life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake... You will keep it. You will find it. And listen, he's not just calling us to lose part of our lives. It's a call to lose all of our lives. That's why he uses the imagery in the picture of a cross. He uses this picture to show people what it means to follow him. That way they will have a a clear understanding that, man, this is going to cost me everything. He uses the image of crucifixion because you can't fake die on a cross. Like, like there's no faking it there. Like, when you take that cross, you know this is only going to one conclusion. I'm afraid many of us are guilty of possum Christianity. We play that we have died with Christ on Sunday, but then we're walking around living in the world in our sin as soon as we walk out of here on Monday. We're good at playing dead in Christ. But we're good at putting on that front for a short period of time, but the reality is we've never truly died to our old selves. We claim we've been crucified with Christ on Sunday, but then we resurrect our flesh on Monday. And that's not what Jesus has called us to. We cannot fake dying to our sin. We can't fake dying to our sin. We we can't fake taking up our, our cross. This is something that's going to cost us everything. Many of us want a resurrection, but we don't want a crucifixion. But Jesus warns us here, we don't get one without the other. We don't get a resurrection without a crucifixion. We don't get new life in Jesus without dying to our sin and ourselves. I mean, I, I, just, I am so afraid for our generation. I, I just see it happening all over the place. man. How many of us are hiding behind secular personality tests to, to justify toxic traits about ourselves and sinful behaviors all in the name of, that's just who I am. To just hiding behind all these things. I mean, it's just hiding behind sexual struggle and idea man, that this is just kind of who I am, forgetting that God's word tells us that he's not only crucified the flesh, he's also crucified the desires of the flesh. And that we're not just helplessly resigned to our personality and our sexuality. How many of us are hiding behind our nationality, our ethnicity, this is who I really am. We're seeking our identity and how much money we have and where we live and where we're going to school and what kind of car we drive and do we have a boat? Like we're seeking our identity in all these things. And Jesus says, whatever you find in all of that, you're gonna lose it in the end. Whatever you find in all these things, you are gonna lose all of it in the end. He's calling us to lay all of it down. Father, take all of me. Take my whole personality, take my sexuality, take my ethnicity, take my nationality, take my family identity, all of it is yours. And goodness, we're so afraid to do it because we're afraid of what's gonna happen if we let these things go. But friends, let's make sure we don't miss this this morning. You and I are gonna lose all those things no matter what. Like that's all coming to an end regardless. The question is, are we willing to lose our lives in this life or are we going to have to lose them internally in the next? Christianity is the only true story where the introduction is death and the conclusion is life. Jesus promises, we're so afraid, what's going to happen if I lay my life down? What's going to happen if I lose my life? Jesus gives us the promise here, what's going to happen is you're going to find it. If you'll let go of the one you have, you'll find the one that you never knew you needed to have. And you're going to find it in him. I love the words of C.S. Lewis on this. I've always loved this. He said, man, how... How prophetic this was decades ago, and how how, how prophetic it is for our generation of Christians today. Please do not miss this this morning. C.S. Lewis said, Your true self will not be found when you go looking for it. It will be found when you go looking for Him. That's where your true identity lies. If you try to hold on to your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of Jesus Christ, you'll find it. That's the paradox and the promise of the gospel. Two weeks from today, Dustin mentioned this a little bit ago, is, is, is Easter Sunday, but the language we're, we're going to be embracing as a church family this year is Resurrection Sunday, and not for the reason some of you might think that we're using that language instead. But we're and very intentional this year about using the language of a Resurrection Sunday, because that Sunday, I'm going to be preaching from Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus carries out this statement more in depth. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And we're intentionally using that language of Resurrection Sunday instead of Easter because I fear that right here in Beaufort, South Carolina, Easter has become nothing more for many than a religious game. But listen, I I promise you, I'm not against, like, this isn't really my thing. I'm not against, like, pastel shirts and family photos and brunch. Like, amen, you know, especially brunch, right? Like, praise God for, for all that but, but for many, like, that, that is what Easter is now. Like, it's a, it's a family photo op one day a year, and it's a lot of activity and hanging out. Maybe we'll just kind of cram a religious service in there. And, and I think what the Christmas and Easter crowd needs to feel more than anything else is uncomfortable about playing that game. You say, that might offend them. They might not come back. They're not really coming anyway. And what good are we doing by by catering to half-hearted nominal devotion to Jesus Christ? The the line in the sand has to be drawn and Jesus is the one who's drawn it. Jesus himself is the one who's drawn it. What it means to follow him on his terms. Those who who want to play this, this game a couple of days a year, they need to hear that Jesus calls them to give up everything, not two Sundays a year, not even 52 Sundays a year, but their lives. That's the call to discipleship and following Christ. Listen, you you ask like, are we still not gonna talk about the free gift? Of course we're gonna talk about the free gift. If the Lord wills, I promise you two weeks from now, I will shout the, the good news gospel announcement at the top of my lungs for three services at 8.15, 9.45, and 11.15. If the Lord wills, like, you, you better believe we are going to proclaim in song and in sermon and in prayer the good news of the empty tomb and the free gift of salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. But if we proclaim the free gift of salvation without also proclaiming the cost of discipleship, we proclaim a half gospel that cannot save. And what good is it if we have 200 converts who have converted to a false gospel, over two have converted to the true gospel? We have to call people to follow Jesus on his terms. And these are the terms. Because of what Christ has done for us, what we recognize, hey, this could cost me my home. And we say, you know what? But I'll pay that cost because Jesus is worth it. It could cost us our jobs, but we say, I pay that cost because Jesus is worth it. It could cost us material possessions and money, but we say, I'll pay that cost because Jesus is worth it. It may cost us our families, but we say we'll pay the cost. It might cost us our lives, but we say we'll pay the cost. Again, I just want to close with the words of Bonhoeffer again today. Earlier, we read his definition of cheap grace. And church, with all of our might, we might we we've got to fight the urge. The cultural pull from outside of here, and man, even at times from within the church, we have to fight the urge to not cheapen the grace. Of God. I meant to ask this earlier, but uh, man, I I heard from probably 10 people after the first service who said they went last week and purchased Bonhoeffer's cost of discipleship. Anybody else reading that? Right? Man, that's awesome. There's readers in our church. That makes my heart so, so happy. You guys listen. This is, praise God. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I pray that that book has the impact on you that it's had on me. The message of Bonhoeffer has, uh, that, that he preached, you know, decades ago, this still has so much relevance for us today. So we've seen earlier the picture of cheap grace, but what is costly grace? Well, what's the opposite end of this? We'll close with Bonhoeffer's words here. Costly grace is the opposite of cheap grace. And here's what it is. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ. For whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Let me read that one more time. What has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son to too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So what's our response to all this this morning? Our response is simple and it's not simple at the same time. Our response is clear, but it's not always easy. And the response is the call of Christ in verse 38. It's to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Jesus. That's the only appropriate response to this. The only appropriate response to the Savior who fully canceled and paid the debt of our sin is to pay whatever cost is required to honor him in return. And when you understand at what cost you were bought, the fact that Your salvation costs the Son of God his life. When we understand that cost, we'll be willing to pay whatever price it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Church, crossless Christianity is cheap Christianity. There is no path to the empty tomb that does not run through the cross, but the promise here is if you will take up your cross, if you will choose the path of crucifixion, you can take comfort in the promise that that road is going to end in resurrection more than those we love most and more than life itself. Let love for the one who loves you the most be what fuels your willingness to surrender everything to him. So our call today is to take up the cross and follow Jesus Christ. We you bow your heads with me as we close? Father, these are weighty words. we consider both what it cost you to save us and what it might cost us to follow your son, Jesus. And Father, I know my temptation is to try and soften the edges of these truths, to try and suppress them, to make excuses for why I should not be obedient to them. Father, for me or for anyone else in this room who's feeling that today, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, put to death those desires? Help us to trust that you gave us John 3.16 in love just as much as you gave us Matthew 10 and Luke 14. Help us to remember that all Scripture comes from you and all Scripture is for our good even the parts that make us very uncomfortable. And could we come before you this morning, Father, in honest examination? Will you show us where we have fallen short, where we are prone to trying to resurrect the old self that has died with your son, Jesus Christ? Will you grant us hearts of genuine confession and repentance when we recognize and acknowledge where we've fallen short. Father, give us the courage to love you more than those that we love the most. Give us the courage to love you more than we love our very lives. Make us people who are willing to pay whatever cost you call us to pay. We truly would submit ourselves to the words that we sang earlier and say, Father, not our will, but your will be done. No matter what it means and no matter what it costs, make us those people today. If you just keep your heads bowed with me for a moment, we're gonna shift to our time of communion. And it's at the table where we are visibly reminded of what the free gift of salvation cost the Father and the Son. Salvation was free for us. It cost Jesus his life. It cost the father the life of his son. We dare not cheapen this grace. Let's remember both the cost of our salvation and let's consider the cost of discipleship because listen, if you don't fully understand the price at which you were bought, you'll never be willing to pay the cost of discipleship look to Jesus, look to the cross, be reminded of what he did for you, and it's that love for you that's going to fuel your love and devotion for him. And surrender all of yourself to him today. So, Father, we lay ourselves before you today. Lord, I can just confess in my own heart. Lord, there's parts of me that I want to hold on to. There's desires and dreams and ambitions that I don't want to there's ways I'm trying to find my life when you're calling me to lose it. So help us to do that work today, God. Give us the courage to stop seeking our life in the things of this world. Give us the courage to lose them for the sake of your son, Jesus, and in losing them, know that we will find them. So as we come to your table this morning, as we remember cost of salvation, as we consider the cost of discipleship, as we pray and as we sing, as we confess, as we repent, as we respond now according to your prompting let all of this be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you the heartfelt praises of your people let our worship be genuine from our hearts to a God who is infinitely worthy of our praise be glorified in this time, we ask all this in Jesus name